Okay. Welcome, welcome. All right. Uh, if everybody would grab, make sure you have a handout. Uh, the handouts and the sign-up sheet are back on the counter out on the mezzanine. And we are going to look at St. Mark chapter 6 this morning. Mark 6, verses 30 to 44. And, uh, you know, as, as, we, as we begin, let me, let me just uh, make a couple of mentions here so I don't forget. So today is the last day that we will meet in this calendar year. And then we break for Christmas and New Year. And we will pick back up, uh, if somebody has a calendar, I think it's, I want to say it's 14. So we will pick back up on January 14th. That'll give everybody a chance to get through the, the holiday season and the New Year season, and then we'll be rolling into January. Um, so that's the first thing. So today's the last day that we meet until January 14th. The other thing is, uh, today if you do have children, uh, you'll need to make sure you get them from the ark at 10.15. Uh, because we have stuff moving around. I think there's Christmas sharing drop-offs um, in the hallway boxes, uh, and so we have to have all the, all the kiddos out. But it's really good to be with you today. Uh, we're going to look at the feeding of the 5,000. And, you know, when you think about... When I, when I think about the theological task of, of what we do, um, there's two kinds of theology. One is called primary theology, and the second one is called secondary theology. And primary theology is the theology that's lived. So it's prayer, it's liturgy, and primary theology is the engagement of, it's like God's grace in motion, if that makes any sense. God's gr- primary theology is like God's grace in motion. It's entering your life. It's attending to your needs. And so we think about primary theology as liturgy. And... In the liturgy, there's a lot going on, but some things are left unanswered. And in other words, there's healthy mystery swirling about in in primary theology in the liturgy. Uh, Secondary theology is a bit different. Secondary theology would be the classroom. It would be like this. And... Secondary theology seeks to answer all the questions that we can and, you know, uncover every, every little piece to understand. Secondary theology is talking in discourse about doctrine and the way that God works and moves. And that's a very important distinction when we think about what we do. Um, because oftentimes people get confused and they want secondary theology in the liturgy. And what that does is it sort of like stunts the liturgical flow. Um, So when we think about primary theology and secondary theology, um, Today we're looking at the feeding of the 5,000, which is God's grace in motion, where Jesus comes and attends to the needs of the people. On the handout on the very front, I have two mountains of the liturgy, 
And I don't know if the other pastors have ever gone through this with you. Has anybody ever seen the two mountains of the liturgy before? No? It's kind of cool. So this is very old. Uh, We see this in the German Lutherans. The German Lutherans talked about the liturgy as two mountains. But it's also seen in St. Augustine. And St. Augustine was Bishop of Hippo, 398 to 430 AD. And he talks about this stuff. And you can look in the hymnal also and like take any of the divine services, for example, in red bold print, there's designations like outlines. So the first red bold print would be confession and absolution. And then the second bold red print would be service of the word. And then the third bold red would be service of the sacrament. So the Lutherans, in the design of our liturgical services, understood this two-mountain theory of the liturgy, and they outlined it in that way. Now, the confession and absolution actually precedes, think about this in the right way, the confession and absolution precedes the service of the word. So the idea is we confess our sins, Christ absolves us, and then we make our way into the holy, the holiest of holies. And that's so the service of the word begins with the, properly speaking, with the introit. Because introit is Latin, right? And it means entrance. So you confess your sins, you receive absolution, and then you enter into the holy. And the service of the word begins to build. So if you look at the, if you look at the, the first mountain would be the service of the word or the liturgy of the word. And everything that happens in the liturgy of the word starts to build it's moving in a direction and it's, it's going up the mountain. And you get to the top, you get to the peak, and that's the top spot of the Liturgy of the Word. Now, does anybody want to guess what would be the peak of the Liturgy of the Word? Reading the Gospel. Yeah, who said that? Boy, you always amaze me. There's no end to Carol... That's exactly right. Now, you know what? Some, sometimes people say it would be the sermon, but it's actually the reading of the gospel. That's the peak. And, of course, we stand, right? We stand for the reading of the gospel. We sing alleluias, and there's sometimes procession and movement for that. Okay? But then it... You go back down the mountain and it starts to drop and shift gears and you get to that low point. And that's when you shift to the liturgy of the sacrament or the service of the sacrament. And you have the preface and the proper preface. And it all goes really quickly, right? You're moving up the mountain speedily. And you get up to that peak. And now what would be the peak for the liturgy of the sacrament. Okay, I heard I heard a couple of different things there. I heard distribution. Institution. In words of institution. Yeah, boy, you are all, you are really on top of things today. Did you know are you are you being honest with me? Did you hear this before? <laughs> That's exactly right. Now, see, sometimes people would say it's when we are taking communion, but it was the peak is actually the words of institution, the ringing of the bells, the singing or the speaking of Christ's words. Now, the reason that the two peaks are what they are are because they both are Christ's words. So those are the peaks. In the liturgy, everything builds, but there is a sense of mystery. So like primary theology, you know, we, we're people that like to have our questions answered and we want to figure things out. But sometimes things are mysterious, like um, 
The Lord be with you and with your spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. You know, what does that mean, lift up your hearts? Well, it could mean a couple of different things. Like, okay, let's get going, you know, Jesus is coming. Or it could be, I'm, my heart is somewhat downcast because of things going on in my life. Or uh, maybe my sins are still troubling me even though I confessed them and I was absolved, but they're still, you know, poking at me. You know, there's, there's a little bit of liturgical mystery in those words. Lift up your hearts, you know. Don't let the things of the world keep you from drawing near to the, thing, the holy things of Christ, but come, let's go, let's walk. And you see a little bit of this in the gospel reading for today in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. So let's, let's start walking through it and we'll have some conversation and, and some comment. So in Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 30, the apost- and by the way, this is New King James that I'm, I'm reading from this morning. New King James. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. So they had come back from a mission and they were reporting. Now, so that I don't forget and, and run out of time this morning, when you think about the Gospels, always look around and see what comes before and what comes after. So we have this wonderful feeding of the 5,000 that we're looking at this morning. But if you look at what comes just before, you have John the Baptist beheaded. Now, what would that have to do with the feeding of the 5,000? Well, on the grand scheme of the gospel, it's like a passing of the torch in a way. John the Baptist comes as a prophet and he's pointing and paving the way and saying, here he comes, here he comes, here he comes. But then this, the unfortunate beheading is, you know, you have the arrest and then the death of John, but it's like the change of a chapter. And now Jesus comes and he's, he's, all focus is going to be on him and on his teaching and his miracles. But more, even more importantly, maybe, would be you have juxtaposed, you have this miraculous feeding of the 5,000, but you have a banquet just before it. But they look very different. And this gets to my PhD dissertation, which is on protreptics. And what protreptics is, just generally speaking, it's an invitation to a a hearer to adopt a new way of living. And what you do is you put juxtapose two things side by side and you say, here's the world you live in, here's the philosophy to which you hold, and here's the world that Jesus and the church lives in, and here's the teaching and philosophy of life to which we hold. Look at the difference. So like protreptics is, and I'll talk about this sometime if you want. We can do a couple sessions and just kind of talk about this stuff. But what it is, is it's you sit and you talk with someone and you say, here's what the world looks like and here's what the church's life looks like. Now, which is appealing? This is happening in this gospel because you have this banquet with Herod. And Herod's banquet looks a lot different than Christ's banquet. Okay, so that's something to think about, uh, you know, when you look at this. 
So, you know, what happens with the Herod's banquet? But Herod has all these, um, you know, royalty, very important people. But, you know, then you have this young lady dancing in a lewd sort of way. And what does Herod do? But he gets lustful eyes and then he starts to make promises that he shouldn't make. And so it turns on him because he liked John the Baptist, right? But John the Baptist was telling him, hey, you shouldn't be living with Herodias, right? And so Herodias, she wanted to have John the Baptist taken out. And so the banquet of Herod, bless you, is it's filled with evil design, right? And, and it ends in John's death. But then if you look at the feeding of the 5,000, it's not royalty who are fed, but it's the commoner. It's the people in great need. And there's nothing but blessing and goodness and growth. So when we look here, verse 31, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. And, you know, in the Greek, it's beautiful. In verse 30, it says the apostles are gathered to Jesus and they proclaimed to him all that they had done and taught. And doing and teaching is this also comes up in Acts 1 1 when Luke says, O Theophilus, uh, you remember the account I told you before of all that Jesus began to do and teach. So you get a sense of the church here where there's two sides there's the doing and there's the teaching and the learning. So, you know, primary theology, so the living and the teaching. So primary theology is the living, and the secondary theology is the teaching. And the apostles do that. They're gathered to Jesus. And so the word synagogue in Greek means to gather together. So the gathering together of people. And blessing coming upon them and over them. Now it says in verse 31, literally in Greek, this place is a desert. And in Mark's, in Mark's account of the feeding of the 5,000, this doesn't happen. It's not said once, but it's said three times. So in verse 31, you come by yourselves. This is a desert place and refresh yourselves for a little while. For they were, many were coming and going and they, there was not an opportune time to eat. And then in verse 32, and they went away in the boat into a desert place by themselves. And then again in verse 35, and already the hour was getting late. And they were come, the disciples, his disciples were coming to him. And they said to him, this is a desert place. The hour is already late. So three times in this text, it's referred to as a desert. And again, like we, yeah, Beth, go ahead. It literally is desert. Three different ones? Okay, yeah, that is so interesting. And like, so in the New King James here, yeah, this is a deserted place already. The hour is late. Verse 31, it's a deserted place. Um, yeah, deserted and verse and that's not a bad 
So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. It's not a bad translation, um, but I think that this is, especially the fact that it comes up three times, that there's something spiritual to this significance. Especially, now I'm getting ahead of myself, but I just don't want to forget it. When you get a little further in this text, when they all spread out to eat, what do they sit upon? Does it, yeah, and literally in the Greek, it's a green grass. So you're like, desert, deserted, green grass, what's going on? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so, you know, there's so many themes running in these scriptures, and Jesus is often depicted as the, the new Moses. So you think about Moses, and Moses was with the people wandering in the desert, desert okay? And there's not enough food, Right? So in many ways, what's happening here with the feeding of the 5,000, this account, is a picture of, it's like a photo negative to a positive, right? It's like, it's like a picture of Moses and the people in the desert wandering about. They're in need. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They need to rest. And Moses is the one who through the Lord, supplies it. Well, now here's Jesus. Jesus is now the teacher par excellence. He is the one to relieve the needs of the people. And, you know, you think about this idea in verse 31. You know, Jesus says, come side by yourselves to the desert place and rest a while. Now, the Greek is anapao, which has an upward movement. The prefix is ana, and it means upward. So the refreshment is of a spiritual nature. They're not just supposed to kick up their feet, you know, and watch some TV for a while, you know, but it's literally spiritual in nature. Yeah, Holly. Yeah, he's, yeah. And that, so it might not be terrain-wise, but Right, it's, it's spiritual, that's right. Especially because I think in one of the other accounts of the feeding of the 5,000, I think that there's even some mention of going across the the sea. Um, so, yeah, what verse is that? Okay. Yeah, there it is. Okay. So they departed to a desert place in the boat by themselves. So, again, you know. Um, what's going on? You know, some people that, like, practical people would just say, oh, they're just getting away from people and that's all it's trying to say. Okay, well, I'm always looking at the spiritual significance because I feel like there's, everything in the Bible has a purpose and is teaching spiritual themes that are found throughout the text. And so I, you know, you think about the boat and the sea and the green grass and all this stuff. And so this is like our lives. So, you know, back to the whole icon picture, this is like the lives of people. Our souls 
have needs and we're busy, especially in our culture. We're super busy, aren't we? There's always way more going on and you're just trying to fit, fit it in, right? I need to fit in some time for prayer. I mean, you know, think about praying before bed and, you know, by the time you get to bed, you're like, right? Collapse. There's quiet and the quiet lulls you to sleep, you know? Um, so we, Jesus is teaching the disciples to rest, spiritual refreshment, slow down, take some time, look around. And um, in fact, you know, I mentioned this morning to somebody, to Nicole, that um, the, uh, the word for scholar it comes from Greek, skolazo, and it means to have leisure, a time of leisure, a time of quiet, a time to look around, you know, a time to think, a time to pray, a time to meditate. And, you know, this is God's grace in motion into your life, a life of contemplation, reading scripture, prayer. So they're trying to do that. But it's not easy. Because in verse 33 then, the multitudes saw them departing and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. And this strikes me that they came and Jesus taught them. We don't often think about that. We just think about the feeding of the 5,000 and how amazing that was and the miracle. It's a gift miracle. But he teaches them first. So when you look at this particular account we see the liturgy. We see the divine service in terms of outline, at least, in this text. Because there is the feeding, but before there's the feeding, he teaches. So in a sense, you have the liturgy of the word, and then you have the liturgy of the sacrament. Same thing happens with the road to Emmaus. Where and I, that's my favorite account. Is that anybody else's favorite? I mean, I I love I love the road to Emmaus because of all that it says. But it's the same thing. As they're walking along the road, they don't detect Jesus, and he's teaching, preaching into their ears. So the teaching comes before the breaking of the bread at the end. So the design. This is God's design. So when you think about the liturgy and its structure, and you have the service of the word, and you have the service of the sacrament, it really is God's design that he teaches and then feeds. Same thing in Exodus. When you have the, um, the giving of the Ten Commandments, it actually starts out... You know, I'm getting to the point in my life where I can't read with my glasses on. It's the weirdest thing. I have to take them off because I can't see. It's crazy. Um, in Exodus 20, it begins with the Ten Commandments, the giving of the Ten Commandments. And so then Exodus 20, 21, 22, and 23 are all teaching. And then after the teaching in chapter 24, Israel affirms the covenant, affirms the teaching that was given. And then it says that they all gathered. Well, here it is. This is Exodus 24, verse 9. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel... And they saw the God of Israel. 
and there were was under his feet as it were as it were a paved work of sapphire stone and it was like the very heavens in its clarity but on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand so they saw God and they ate and drank so even there in the old testament you have all this teaching and then after the teaching, they see God and they eat and drink. So you see this structure over and over and over again. But back to our gospel. So does anybody have any questions before I, before I keep rolling? Yeah, go ahead. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about the Eucharist, you know, Luther's catechism sums it up, um, you know, that we receive the forgiveness of sins, life and salvation. Now, one of the things that's not often talked about, but the Lutherans did talk about this, and it's even in the Book of Concord, that the Eucharist also helps a person in his or her soul, but it also strengthens the body. And um, so there's a lot going on in the reception of the Eucharist. So the so you go in the liturgy of the word, and then you get to the prayer of the church, and we send our prayers up, right? Our needs, our desires, we're praying for other people, we're praying for ourselves, for the church. And so you have all this uncertainty and, un, at this point, unanswered prayers, right, as you approach the Eucharist. And so your heart is in need. So your heart, your soul is hungry. So it's maybe not a physical hunger, but the soul is hungry. The soul is hungry for help, answers, comfort, relief. And the Eucharist actually addresses those unanswered or not yet answered prayers. So, you know, as Jesus is teaching us, as he feeds us his very body and blood, he is teaching us in the midst of our challenges and our struggles. And we learn a lot uh, in the midst of waiting. And so uh, the Eucharist is cultivating our souls and shaping who we are as Christians at the Eucharist. And we are learning how to deal with being caught in the middle of mystery and waiting. But we're never the same. That's the thing. When you receive the Eucharist and then you go back about your life, you go back out into the world, you are never quite the same. The Lord is always changing and shaping you in the Eucharist. And it's addressing your hungers of soul. So it's very valuable and so that's sort of what's going on here. So here in this text, the multitude saw him departing. Many knew him and ran on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them, came together to him. Jesus, he came out. He saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion. 
And the word in Greek for compassion is this funny word, splachnizomai. Splachna. Okay? And it literally means like, and I think you probably have heard one of the pastors or maybe both of them talk about this before, but his insides hurt. It's that kind of compassion where Jesus looks out and sees them and he hurts deeply, deep inside for them. And this comes up in different places. Um, This word is used in Philippians 2 for uh, like, um, I think it's comfort of love. You don't have to turn to this, but I'll, I'll just take a quick glance. Um, if there's any uh, consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any compassion and mercy, so the compassion would be that splachna. So what happens here is Paul in Philippians 2 is exhorting the church to exhibit this same compassion where you look out at others in need and you feel deeply for the needs of people. This is found, it, it originates though in Jesus. So when Jesus looks at you, he sees the same thing. He has this compassion for you. So as you draw near to the Eucharist, your prayers have been, your sins have been confessed and absolved. Your prayers have been prayed. And now you draw near to the Eucharist and Jesus looks upon you and he has this same compassion for you. So part of this holy mystery, this primary theology of God's grace in motion is that he attends to you and he does it in the Eucharist. Yes? This is just rolling around in my head, so forgive this. No, go ahead. Many people know in this room that my mother uh, suffered from Alzheimer's for about eight years before she died. And I picked her up in the, sometime in the first few years where she had a, she still knew who I was, but not much else. Yeah. And we went to church. She's a devout Catholic. Uh, she was an oblate at monastery near her town. Oh, wow. Very well catechized. And when we were sitting in the pew, and uh, at the verba, she said, what do I do? She had forgotten. And talked to her about it. And then she said, what if I forget? You know, when I'm up there, and I said, you know, Mom, I'll go with you. You know, it'll be fine. So here's this woman who remembers very little forgot the process of the Eucharist, went up, received it, and wept. Yeah. Wept uncontrollably. So when you talk about Eucharistic comfort, that to me is an example of the power and the comfort and the nourishment of our soul through the Eucharist. Yeah. That is really powerful. I mean, that, those kinds of, those kinds of stories are amazing to me. You know, and it's because we are wrapped up in the Lord's arms, right? You know, I think Christianity and Christian theology and doctrine and teaching, you know, a lot of it's very intellectual because it's information and you're learning, and that's an important component of catechesis. Um, So I don't discount that. That's super important. I mean, I spend my life teaching, right? Uh, having said that, though, uh, sometimes, especially in the Western world, we tend to over, and I talk about Christendom in general, we over-intellectualize the faith. Um, but so much of it is practice. Like, um, I think it's at the beginning of... Ephesians, see if my memory is spot on here this morning. Um, There's a word in Greek that Paul uses. 
Okay, it's not Ephesians, so the brain's not working as well as it should. Um, at any rate, let's see if I can find it. It's in one of the uh, one of the epistles in to Asia Minor, and he talks about learning by experience and. This is going to drive me crazy. Um, Maybe it's Philippians 1. Let me take a quick look here. Yeah. Um, And so in the Greek it reads like this. So Philippians 1 verse 9. And this I pray in order that your love yet more and more would abound in knowledge and all experience. Now, what does it say in English? Like, does yours, verse Philippians 1 9? Discernment, knowledge, and discernment. Okay, so, so in Greek, uh, Philippians 1 9, Paul is saying, I, I hope that you abound more and more in knowledge. And this word is um, gnosis for divine knowledge, to know divinely, to know intimately. Um, This word in Hebrew is yada, and it means like when Adam comes to his wife and they know each other intimately. So to know very intimately. So this word for knowledge is to have God's divine knowledge imparted to you. But so knowledge, and that says discernment or experience, practice. So Philippians 1.9 emphasizes our understanding through practice as well as information. And so that's like Martha's mother you know, she can't remember the things intellectually anymore, but the experience, the experiential aspect of the Lord coming to the person and, and shaping and blessing, shaping the soul stays with the person. So let's keep going. Yes, go ahead. I just wanted to say the full section reminds me of Psalm 23. Because they sit down in green pastures, he restores their souls, and then he prepares a table before them. That's right. Of their enemies, so it's just like a all of a sudden green grass grows up. And that's how the early church fathers interpreted this in terms of Psalm 23. So good, yeah. So you're right on. You're, you're tracking with the, the early church fathers, so that's good. I like that. Um, so, if, so then it continues on. And Jesus, when he came out, saw the great multitude. He's, he has compassion. So he begins to teach them many things. And then in verse 35, when the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, again, this is a deserted place or a desert place. Already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. So the logic of the apostles comes to bear, right? And this is often where we land in the midst of turmoil and strife, right? Well, we're stuck with the dynamics we've got. That's how we often conclude, right? But not with the Lord, because the Lord pre- presents opportunities where there may not have been opportunities. And isn't that partly why we pray? We pray to God when we're asking for things that he will turn things around, that he will bring relief, that he'll bring help. These dynamics that seem to be impenetrable or impossible, the Lord can turn them around and turn things in in a good direction. And so, 
Jesus answers in verse 37, you give them something to eat. So he's stretching their faith, right? He's testing their faith. They said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. So, I mean, it's like ridiculous, isn't it? It's not even close. You know, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, or last week, sometime, Second Kings 4, and how you have with Elisha a miraculous feeding that mirrors this one, but it's not as grand in scope. So with Jesus, he is like doing what happened with Elisha, feeding a hundred men with 20 loaves. Well, Jesus makes it really big because he wants everybody to see, I can do the impossible. So he commands them to all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. And there's so much going on here because like in the Greek language, and I think I put it on the handout uh, for verses 38 to 40. Um, verse 40, it literally says they're put in garden plots. Isn't that interesting? The people are put in garden plots. So, I mean, there's just so much more going on. They become like the garden of Christ. And there's a lot of Old Testament imagery because when Moses gathered the people, he put them in groups and it was order. So now they're being put in groups and they're being put in order, but they're garden plots. They're going to grow. It's like the Garden of Eden imagery all over again and feeding and blessing and joy and peace and hope. And this is what Jesus brings to all these people. And so he had taken the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. Now, do you hear that language? He took the, he took the loaves, he looked up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave it to them. Sounds like the words of institution. So, you know, it's not the Lord's Supper, you know, because he hasn't instituted it yet. He hasn't suffered and died on the cross and rose from the dead yet. But it's a picture of what's coming for the church. So you see all the different layers of what's happening in this text. It's so very deep and it speaks to us. It speaks to life today. It speaks to the church's life of worship. It speaks to how Christ feeds us as he teaches us. And we find the same thing in the Eucharist. You know, um, in the Protestant world, you know, like John Calvin and Luther, you know, they went back and forth all the time. I mean, they wrote a lot on the Lord's Supper. And when I was at seminary, I don't know if they had to do this. I don't know if Pastor Nelson got this treatment, but they did it to us where we had to sit down and read John Calvin's treatises on the Lord's Supper and Luther's treatises without knowing who wrote what. And it was almost impossible to tell the difference. But with John Calvin, he said that Jesus is bodily in heaven in such a way that he's confined. So a person receives communion only spirit you know it's only the body and blood spiritually whereas the lutherans said we are eating the body and blood of christ you know so um truly and so you think about the feeding of the 5000 and how you can feed 
5,000 men, not including women and children, with that few of loaves and fish, and you start to see that Christ can do anything. And so then you think about the Eucharist, and intellectually, if you try to like think it through and go like, this is the body and blood of Christ, how exactly is that possible? But it is, right? All things are possible with God. And so you just trust that, yeah, this is a miraculous feeding that we eat and drink Christ's body and blood. And our souls are fed as we take Christ into us. Luther said, Christ's body enters us bodily. I think it was in his great conf- uh, confession of 1528. So when you, this feeding of the 5,000 is a story, is an icon of your life. And, and so it ends then, they all ate and were filled or well-fed. And they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish Now, those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. So any any comments or questions? Because I know I get rolling. If you have any questions, we can chat afterwards. Um, But it's just another wonderful picture of, of the Lord's work in your life and in the lives of people. So let us pray and then receive the benediction. Almighty God, Grant to your church your Holy Spirit and the wisdom that comes down from above, that your word may not be bound but have free course and be preached to the joy and edifying of Christ's holy people, that in steadfast faith we may serve you and in the confession of your name abide unto the end. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen. Amen.